So this show is carbon positive. We've partnered with Carbon Positive to allow us to get to that point. Listen to the show to find out how you also can become carbon positive. I have one GCSE. I'm dyslexic, I'm dyspraxic, and I have mild ADHD, which makes things rather exciting when trying to run a business. However, I have built multi-million pound businesses with no investment, and now I invest in others. And guess what? I love every minute. I'm Oliver Bruce. This is my podcast, Success is in the Mind, and welcome to The Journey, a podcast where we speak to founders and entrepreneurs from the businesses that you've always wanted to know more about. We delve into the formative years of their business lives and ask those with the inside track on startup and scale up life, the questions I wish I knew the answers to when I started out. As always, the more you share and subscribe to this podcast, the more people that'll be able to learn, enjoy and avoid the mistakes that so many make. So when should you raise VC funding? Should founders give all employees equity and what do acronyms banded around in boardrooms like SEIS, EIS, TAM and VAT actually mean to founders like you? We'll shed light on just how many founders are neurologically diverse, and we'll show you how to get through tough times when things inevitably get hard. I'm Oliver Bruce, and welcome to Success is in the Mind, the journey. It is very lonely. Founders I know who live in cities with all their friends, it's very lonely because your schedule is very different, your priorities are very different. And most people would probably go insane or get incredibly bored. But I just like love, I love repetitions. I think the sacrifices and the stress, I was naive to how much it, it would be. I'm someone that if I don't see regular progress, I'm like, what am I doing this for? I always want to see some kind of growth. This is the first time in my life I've never been bored. Hello, and thanks so much for coming on the show. So I want to understand a bit about you. You were born, and now you're here. What's happened in between? My name's Marietta, and I own Cheeky Nibble, which is the granola business. And I um, started it only like a year and a half ago. Um, but before that, I was uh, studying in London at university um, in sort of media communications. And that's when I sort of fell in love with branding and the idea, the power of a brand. Um, so I always kind of wanted to start my own business, but after uni, I worked for a company. And then when I left that company, I decided now's as good as time as any to start set up my own company. Because <laughs> how old are you now then? So I am 24. I started my business, well, a year and a half ago, I just turned 23. So I was kind of 22, 23. Wow, okay. And you, you traveled a lot up until this point, India, Germany, your parents yeah. kind of lived overseas, et cetera. What was, I mean, did that shape what, what essentially Cheeky Nibble has become and, and you as an individual? I think um, living in India was amazing as an experience, but I was quite young. I was like a teenager then. Um, but then working in Germany um, really did inspire Cheeky Nibble quite a lot because I was working there during lockdown. And I was really it kind of, as soon as you can't get on a plane as easily, you, I started feeling very homesick. And one of the reasons why all my Grenada flavors are sort of inspired by nostalgic British desserts is that I was making this Granola for myself and I was getting homesick and I was in Germany so I was making like cherry bake or flame Granola to kind of like fill that void of being far from the UK um but yeah it was it's, it, I've been very fortunate to sort of be uh exposed to lots of different cuisines and cultures and food is such a medium of like connecting with people and spreading joy and yeah people have such strong um, nostalgic and sort of national attachment to their like cult food from their culture. So it was kind of interesting as well to look at that. 
I mean, the Jerry Bakewell was 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 my favourite. I had some uh, the other night whilst I was watching TV. I felt like it was a, a guilt-free snack instead of having an actual Bakewell tart. I can have some granola. I mean, in terms of coming up with, with those different flavours, banoffee pie, latte, cherry Bakewell, it can't be that easy to just produce granola that tastes pretty similar to what the actual product is. I've always been a quite a keen baker. Um, I had some restrictions when I started making my own granola because... Um, it needs to be nut free just because I had like friends and family with nut allergies. So that kind of like is one of the reasons why it's not free is that I just wasn't using nuts anyway. And I really struggled to find granola that was nut free. So I um, started making my own. And then in terms of the flavors, I just like, I actually have, I tried loads of flavors. I have a sort of vault of like other flavors that are sort of ready to go. Um, but when I started testing them and testing them, I, ha- I had like maybe 20 flavors that I liked. And I couldn't choose which four to launch with because I couldn't launch with them all because I physically couldn't bake that much variety. Um, and I ended up just choosing the four that were my four family members' favourites. So my dad, my mom, my sister, my brother, their four favourites are the flavours we went for. And they have very different tastes. So I was like, surely there'll be something for everyone if I go with their fl- favourite flavours. But you've won you've won awards off the back of this and you've only been going a year, as you say. I mean, Innovate UK Young Inno- Innovators Award was one of the first, right? I mean, how did you go about winning that so early on in, in your business life? Well, I mean, my the first award I won was like within two months of launching it. I, lo- I won the Kettle Foods New Business Award in Norfolk, um, which was great because I got to go to Kettle's factory in Norfolk and see all the crisps being made, which is very inspiring. Um, and then the Innovate UK one was very serendipitous. I, I was at a trade show in Birmingham and a guy that happened to work for Innovate UK came up to my stand and was like, the deadline for young innovators is in a week's time. I think you do really well there because your product, that you, the brand you created, the product you created is very unique. So I kind of very rushed, did a uh, did an application and I happened to win, which is amazing. And that's so. It, I've been enjoying it so much. All the mentoring and support they give is incredible. So, in terms of solo female founders, you know, it's very, very difficult to go into a, a, a business as a solo founder. Similarly, you're, you know, twenty three, twenty four. You're very, very young as well. There's a lot of things that are up against you in that sense. How have you found the journey so far? Yeah, I think, in some ways, being um, a solo founder is harder because you have no one to bounce ideas off. I also started my business in the countryside, very rural. No one here or no one I know owns their own business. So I had, it, I felt very isolated. Um, but the benefit of that being self-funded is that I know that a lot of female founders struggle to get funding. Women are massively underfunded. Um, but because I was self-funded, I didn't really, I haven't felt the sort of negative implications of maybe being a female founder as much. Um, but definitely being a, on my own has been difficult for sure. Do you see so when you say you're self-funded? I'm assuming that's sort of friends and family, or is that literally your own savings that you have pumped into that? Well, I I was like I said, living in Germany, working in Germany during the pandemic, and I had a very good salary um, and bonuses, and I didn't spend any money because I was stuck in the pandemic. So I reinvested my savings. I came back to the UK and I was like, oh, I could go on holiday or I could start a business. So um, I I did that. I, obviously, I lived in my parents' house and they bought me food and I didn't pay rent. So I was helped out in that way as well, um, which is a huge privilege. Obviously, not everyone can can live at home for free and eat your mom's cooking all the time. 
No, I know. I wish I still could. So from a neurological point of view, I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic, got ADHD and, and, and yourself, you've got you've got Tourette's and you've also got autism. You know, how have you actually managed to cope and, and build a brand, build a business with fundamentally what are quite significant barriers that might be facing you? So, I mean, with the Tourette's and the autism, I struggle a lot with like anxiety and the Tourette's obviously physical tics. And I found that doing a lot of exercise really helps my mental health. It really helps me feel less anxious and, you know, more uh, relaxed about change, which is something I struggle with. Um, and also I don't get tics anymore. Like I used to fall over and get tics like every 20 minutes. And then I started really exercising a lot and that helped massively. And one of the reasons I started making granola that was so chunky and snackable is because I wanted a granola that I could like take on a walk with me and go to the gym with me and just eat constantly because I was always so hungry because of the amount of exercise I have to do to feel good. Um, so that that has influenced the reason why I started Cheeky Nibble. Um, but then also having started the business, one of the things that's a real superpower, at least for me as an autistic woman, is that I love process and efficiency and I love routine. So I've bake 50 to 100 boxes every day and I have done for the last year and a half bar a few days where I've done like trade shows and stuff and most people would probably go insane or get incredibly bored but I just like love I love repetition so I, I can cope with sort of yeah being a bit of a production house by myself um, more so than maybe a neurotypical person could. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, in terms of manufacturing that many alone, it is difficult. But you said that you're moving to London and you've got other people that are coming on to help you with that now. Yeah, so I think I was at this sort of stage where I was looking at my bakery, which I currently just bake by myself. I have commercial ovens and commercial equipment. I'm not in my parents' kitchen anymore, thank God. Um, <laughs> but it was kind of the case of I could hire people and teach them how to make the granola and um, yeah, be a full-time baker and full-time bakery or I can look to outsource production and focus on the business and the brand and things like that, which is actually where my interest is. So yeah, I was very fortunate to find a uh, bakery in Lancashire that I hope, fingers crossed, will take over my production soon. And just because they're so much more advanced than me, they, they know how to do all the audits necessary for supermarkets. It just helps take me to that next level, which I don't... I'm very aware that I'm young and I I don't have the expertise to set up a factory myself. 100%. And in terms of how you found the outsourced facility, I suppose, was that something that you went and searched for on Google? How did you find the right place to get your product made that you trusted? Because there'll be so many founders that have made mistakes and found the wrong people to make the product. Yeah, I mean, it was difficult because I have very strict allergen requirements. I mean, I needed to be a vegan, nut-free, gluten-free site. Um, and there's just not that many of those. And so that really narrowed it down. And I was really, really struggling to find one. And I was Googling. I even looked outside the UK. But with, you know, Brexit, there's always issues with customs and I, how expensive that's going to be. And I also really want, it's a, it's a very British brand with its flavors. I wanted it to feel British. I wanted to keep the business within the UK if possible as well. Um, so I ended up searching brands that created similar products that also had the same allergen requirements. And I reached out to one and the lady who owns it very kindly has sort of become a mentor to me and has put me in touch with the factory. And I really trust her and I've met the people in the factory and I really trust them. So I have a good feeling. I'm a very gut instinct person and I have a good feeling about both of them. So I'm very fortunate. But yeah, it's kind of a weird route. I didn't just like, I started off Googling gluten-free vegan manufacturers UK. 
really hard to find. So then I looked at the yeah, went sort of the back door, looking at businesses that are similar. And I'm assuming, does that mean that your margins are now impacted? How has that worked from a, from a number point of view for you? The margins obviously are higher, but I wasn't paying myself a salary. So obviously these people have a salary that needs to be paid. Um, the margins are affected. Obviously, cost of, it's all happening with like general cost going up. Um, but my volumes will increase. Um, so that should also go down. Uh, and also I can invest more time myself and getting to those markets. Also, unless I was in a factory that had like the BRC certification, I could never even approach a supermarket. And I can't, you know, even if my margins are smaller, if I'm shifting greater volumes, um, hopefully it'll go well. But yeah, the, it has been impacted, but it's hard to say whether that's, um, yeah, necessarily just the production costs. I mean, I think they're pretty reasonable, actually, but fingers crossed it all goes well. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Hux Health, and Hux Health is your insurance policy. It is your booster shot, the extra hour of focus, or indeed the gift of sleep after a very long day. It is your secret weapon, and it's your daily edge. And it's also a product that I use daily, and I swear by it. I use the hydration tablets, the nootropic capsules, and the sleep capsules. Head over to HuxHealth.com, where you can get 30% off all the products by using the discount code SUCCESS when ordering, because life is about your path and not the beaten path. Back to the episode. And I was going to go on to that point in terms of the supermarkets, etc., because actually, surely that is that next step for you. And in terms of actually opening those doors to supermarkets, people like Tenzing, for instance, who came on this podcast a few series ago, that is one of the hardest things to do, is to get your brand into a supermarket and to get consumers buying it because apart from anything it's difficult to get in but it's also expensive to get the, the the branding and the marketing out there how is that your next chapter is that something you're excited but also nervous about because surely it's around the corner this year my focus is actually really to grow my direct to consumer sales and really cement the brand identity directly with consumers um i will obviously try and get into a supermarket but i might want to build the brand presence a bit more in like the public eye um before i approach those my granola is like a premium product, so that does narrow down the variety like of supermarkets I could approach. Um, so I might also look at maybe creating granola bars or like more accessible price point products to then maybe get into a supermarket that way. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely on the cards. I hopefully will launch in Whole Foods this year. So that's like my first step into the sort of slightly bigger leagues, I think. Well, I was going to say Whole Foods seemingly would be a natural synergy if you are that slightly more premium but healthy orientated in, in, that, in that sense. Yeah. And t talk to me about how you actually got into Whole Foods then, because surely that wasn't, again, a quick Google and you're in. I mean, I haven't launched in Whole Foods yet. I hope to launch with them in the summer. Um, but with all these things, you know, you, it's always good to be proactive. Like I've reached out to stockers that I have got into shops that way. Like with Bailey and Sage, which is one of my first stockers, I was actually still baking my friend's kitchen. Not sure if they knew that, but <laughs> they, they took me on when I was still there. Um, but things like Selfridges and Whole Foods, you know, I would email and email and email buyers, LinkedIn messages, nothing. They reached out to me and when they invited, because they saw me on Instagram or they saw me at a pop-up or something. Um, and I think if they reach out to you, um, they're much more eager and proactive and like trying to get you into the, into the store. So... If I was to give anyone advice, is yes, be proactive, evil them, because why not? But also just get your brand into a pop-up or a trade show or something, because they'll chase you if they feel like they found you, rather than the other way around. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And actually, the way that you've created noise, and again, this is how I came across you, was 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 through Mountain Base, um, who are funnily enough filming us in a week. But in terms of that branding and 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 that sort of marketing side, which you enjoy, you know, the, the actual brand of Cheeky Nibble is so authentic and feels old school, but yet quite current in a, in an interesting way. And it certainly stands out. What was the kind of concept and logic behind that? So I wanted it to feel like retro and nostalgic because of the flavors and just like, again, that was sort of slightly homesick at the time. So I was like, just wanted like the sort of creature comforts of home. Um, but I also always loved cartoons growing up. I loved like the Peanuts, which is Snoopy, if people don't know. Um, and just general, I love manga, like sort of Japanese illustration, uh, Studio Ghibli. I just loved illustration in general. So I was like, oh, I want it to be nostalgic, but I also want it to be fun and cartoony. Um, so yeah, so when I when I was designing the boxes and drawing the boxes, that's what I was coming up with. Which, um, yeah, it takes a, it takes a long time to to draw the boxes, but um, that's one of the reasons why the flavors don't come out that often. I hadn't realized that you'd hand drawn all those boxes. They're amazing. Well, I kind of I sort of half hand drew them. I designed all the branding myself, and I I pencil drew the illustrations, but. I kept going on Photoshop on my laptop and I just couldn't draw it digitally and he needed like a digital file. So I found this amazing illustrator on Instagram in Mexico and he just drew them exactly this in the style that I wanted them to be drawn. So I like sent him all these pencil drawings and photos of the food and he drew them. So the images on the boxes he drew digitally based on my drawings. But yeah, having to explain to a Mexican man who doesn't speak English what a banoffee pie was was quite interesting. <laughs> I was like, no idea <laughs> what he was drawing. And he was like, yeah, I'll do it. That's fine. Well, I'm interested in the kind of support that you had around you when you were starting this because you said you were away, you are a bit home so you came back. Obviously, you're now with your parents, you're, you're moving to London. You know, support circles and people that you spoke to about this concept when you went, right, I'm going to leave my job and going to make cereal and try and sell it. You know, what, how was that received? Well, I was quite nervous because... I had I had sort of I had moved back I, I moved back to the UK and I and I I'd given notice but I had like a couple of a month or two left of my um of my notice period I was working from Norfolk and my dad was kind of like dropping hints like oh what are you gonna do next kind of thing um, he wasn't putting too much pressure on me but he was kind of going, looking at jobs and at the time I told my mom I want to start my own business and it was like January uh, 2021 and we would go on these long long walks because I had to do a lot of exercise like. I'm doing like 12, 15 kilometers a day walks, like hours. And I would just talk to her about my ideas and she would be like really encouraging. And we come, we were like bouncing names off each other. And she was just very supportive. She's not like a person that gives her opinion, but she kind of encourages your own thought process. Uh, but I was scared about going ask, telling my dad. Um, but I think he, he was very oblivious. I was like baking granola in the kitchen almost every day, like t trying recipes, giving them to him. And I think he just thought I was granola obsessed. I don't know. <laughs> he was like, oh yeah, that tastes like Victoria sponge. Like, but um, it did mean that when I, by the time I decided to actually do it, I had like all the flavors, all the branding, the brand name, everything. I didn't even trademarked it. So it was kind of like a done deal. And he was like very supportive as soon as he found out. The name Cheeky Nibble, which I came up with and with my mom and it just felt right instantly. I My nickname as a child was Cheeky Monkey. So he just like <laughs> fell in love with the name as soon as I said it. So I was like, that's 
that, that helps sweeten the pot, I think, as well. It's a, it is a great name. And in terms, I suppose, of how you or, or, or where you are now in your in your career, if you can call it that, I suppose it's a journey, really, isn't it? Um, what does your dad think of it now? Does he look at it and go, wow, that is really, really impressive? Or does he still maybe not quite understand what entrepreneurship actually is? Oh, no, he's the best. Like, he's so proud and supportive. It's I'm very, very lucky to have very supportive parents, both of them. Occasionally, if I ask him too much advice, he starts like giving his opinion too much and like, you don't actually know any more than I do about <laughs> business because you haven't had your own either. So, like, yeah, I have, to, yeah, I have to put him in his place sometimes like, because he he'll give me advice on like the food industry and I'm like, I don't know much, but I know a little bit more than you do on this now. So, um, yeah, there's a little bit of that still, but he's really supportive and he's, yeah, he's like my biggest fan. He he goes around and tells everyone about it, which is very embarrassing, but it's sweet. Oh, that is amazing. And I suppose that's, you know, being as candid as you, as you have been in terms of not knowing a vast amount when you start out in the industry that you're actually starting out in, I think is, a, is an issue, not an issue. It's a, it's a thing that entrepreneurs full stop face, right? I think no one goes into an industry when they're starting their first company knowing everything about it. But, you know, to dial it back six, eight, 12 months when, to where you are now, what have you learned that you, A, didn't realize and B, may have thought actually just wasn't a thing in the industry that you are, apart from regulations? I think that I mean there was a lot there's a lot of like little nitty gritty things that I just didn't even think about like the weight of my product and how that would affect shipping costs and the fact that in order to try each flavor it's going to be twice as much to ship than if you try three flavors just because of the, the thresholds of Royal Mail like things like that I just didn't think of um, my my job in Germany was basically to help create brands for cosmetics companies so I did actually have quite a bit of experience no I wanted and it, I worked for a manufacturer so I knew kind of a bit of what it takes to get an idea and put it bring it to life and go through the manufacturing and put it on the shelf in terms of labeling registering businesses and stuff like that um so that wasn't too shocking for me but I think the probably the biggest takeaway for me when starting a food business in the UK was like learning where to get the message out there like i i started off very early with like instagram and social media which really helped and i think i've slightly underestimated um how quickly i would grow just through like reaching out to an influence i think my, i i spent a lot of time investing in the look of the packaging and i was surprised when i reached out to like someone with half a million followers on youtube that they actually wanted to try it without knowing what it tastes like just and i think that is because of the branding so I, it grew very quickly, and within like a month, I had to leave my parents' kitchen just because I couldn't, I couldn't cope with the, with the baking anymore. <laughs> That's a great problem to have, though, that you grew too quickly. And I it's suppose a good in terms, yeah, a hundred percent. In terms of what you're shifting or selling or distributing at the moment, then just to put it into context, kind of where are you on that journey? How much do you shift on a on a daily or a weekly basis? Um, I think it does depend seasonally. January is normally a bit quieter than like Christmas and summer, but I'm probably probably around 200 boxes at least a week. Um, at least 200 boxes. At the moment, I'm baking around 200 boxes, but January is always a bit quieter. Wow, that is that is a huge amount. And in terms of when you upscale now to your new manufacturers or your new uh, producers, I suppose, where are you wanting to take it in terms of numbers uh, from a sales point of view? I would be happy with a sort of 20% growth in sales just because of the fact that when I'm manufacturing in a in a factory i have a better shelf life because the packaging is having a slight change which just opens me up to look at you know international retailers at the moment my shelf life is too short 
um, to sort of even go outside of the UK. And also because of the accreditations of the factory, I can then go to like Ocado and I can go to um, supermarkets. Uh, and also the way that they will deliver the package to me is in pallets. And a lot of times when you can deliver something by the pallet, it opens up new retailers as well. But even if I don't get the growth this year, I want to focus now that I'm no longer baking so much, I'm really going to push the marketing and try and spread brand awareness, which I hope will grow my direct to consumer sales. So even if my wholesale orders don't go up necessarily, my margins are better direct to consumer anyway. So I'd, I'd probably still be quite happy to just grow that by like 5%. A hundred percent. And in terms of scaling it from an investment point of view, are you looking in the near future at, at getting an injection of cash so that you can hire people or invest in brand or, you know, push the product more? Yeah, I, I, I think just speaking to other entrepreneurs, there is a point where you will have to get funding. At the moment, I'm having this big change with the manufacturing and I want to see that when now that myself as the founder suddenly has hours and hours more in the day because I'm not making it, how much I can then push it myself with me being in London, networking, creating content, growing the brand that way. Um, and then when I'm starting to feel like I'm stagnating or not growing anymore after that, that's when I would look for funding um, to maybe get an employee or or um, hire a marketing agency to take me to the next level. But I kind of want to give myself a few months to see how much I can grow just with this first change and then and then see. A hundred percent. And in terms of when you when you hire said employee down the line, for instance, you know, for me, you know, delegation is a really important thing to be able to do. But learning how to do it is very, very difficult, right? In terms of uh, from your point of view, do you think you'll be a good delegator? I mean, having worked for people prior, you know what it's like to be delegated to. But do you think you're going to be a good manager? I don't know. I it does make me nervous just because I kind of someone that like if I want to do something, I'll do it myself because I just wanted to get it done. Um, I think the key for me would be hiring people who do to do jobs at least first that I don't want to do, and I know that. And if I, if I hire someone, I, it would be that sort of I'd have a gut instinct that I tr could trust them, and I would have I wouldn't I would only hire someone if I respected that they know more about that subject than me. And if I feel like someone knows more than me, I'm very happy to be like this. You take ownership of this. Um, you be proud. This is your work. This is your job this can be your thing. Um, I think it would be harder to kind of share a job with someone um, because then I would always feel like I'm the slightly bigger fish because it's my business. I just wanted to say, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. And if you are, we'd love it if you could rate it, subscribe to it and share it with friends and colleagues. As you know, the more reach that we get, the bigger the guests become and the more knowledge sharing that we can do. To find out more, head over to successpodcast.co.uk. As a startup or SME, it can be hard to keep your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on 100% of the time. A past guest of the show and now series sponsor, Habu, offers solutions to businesses and organisations of varying sizes the ability to pick and pack your product from their D2C hubs across Europe. You can now stop asking your partner to help box up a recent order, and your living room will no longer be filled with boxes from floor to ceiling. Instead, the team at Habu will do all of this for you, and you don't need to worry about size. Habu helps start Startups with orders of less than 500 parcels a week all the way through to larger organisations with more complexities. So speak to the team at hubu.com and quote success pod and see how they can help you. Back to the episode.
in, in terms, I suppose, of working and managing yourself as an individual right now with whatever neurological things you've got going on from, from, from Tourette's, et cetera, point of view, how do you compartmentalize? How do you take a step back and how do you go, this is what I want to do today. This is where I'm going to go. Because, yep, you mentioned about going through the routine of, you know, 50 to 100 boxes a day. That was just good because you enjoyed doing that. But when something off-piste comes along and, you know, a spanner gets thrown in the works, how do you deal with that? Because some people with autism, for instance, would deal with it badly and maybe not get the most out of themselves. I, I do. I can. I can react badly sometimes if something like dramatic happens. Um, normally, I'm lucky that I bake very early in the morning. So I kind of have done my bake by midday. And then I just work, I'm, I do all my admin on the treadmill as a walking desk. So even if something very stressful happens because I'm like exercising and it helps regulate my heart rhythm that really helps me uh stay sort of like calm but I also think that things that I would probably overreact to a year and a half ago I don't so much anymore I think the the more times you're exposed to an a drama or an issue that feels like the end of the world and then a week later you can't even remember it you know like I used to overreact if a customer had a, a box that arrived damaged I'd be like so upset and then actually, you know, like obviously I don't want that to happen, but you know, the, most customers are super lovely. And if I send them a replacement box and an, a box and an apology email, they're really sweet and kind back. And they often write reviews saying amazing customer service. So there's always a silver lining and, you know, delays in a shipment always sounds really bad like for ingredients, if it delays some, uh, delays or something like that. But then you let your stockists know there's going to be a delay and they're also really nice. It's not often as big a deal as you think it is. And now I kind of don't react as badly because I have the sort of experience that it will be okay in the end. Yeah. And in, I mean, in terms of if you dialed the clock back even further to school then, were you as pragmatic with the way that you, you know, ran your schooling career, ran your life? Or is that something that you've learned literally through business? I think I'm much, definitely much more pr productive now than I was at school. I did enjoy like relaxing and I was probably a bit lazy with schoolwork. I think one thing I struggle with a lot of school is that like as an autistic person, I'm if I'm interested in something, I can work on it a hundred percent of the time with a hundred percent energy, probably more than a neurotypical person could. I just become obsessed and that's what my business is for me. At school, if I didn't enjoy a subject, I, I would not revise at all. I would barely do the homework. I it was I really struggled to do anything I wasn't interested in. So yeah, it's definitely different now because I, but I, you know, have the privilege that I've managed to focus my career in a way that focuses my interests. So now cheeky nibble is like my number one hobby, and I think about it all the time. So it's kind of easy to be productive there. That's, I mean, I totally understand in terms of the focal thing. I mean, I wasn't interested in much at school, which is probably why I only got one GCSE. But did you do quite well from an academic point of view? Yeah, I think I, I, I think I did do quite well, and I think that's like I was only recently diagnosed with autism, and I think that's one of the reasons why is that I think unless you are struggling at school, you often don't go through the process of being assessed. Um, I also was really lucky; I went to a boarding school, so I had a lot. They think they, they create a lot of structure at boarding schools to keep you out of trouble, basically. So I like routine and structure, and I think that. If I had been uh, homeschooled and if my parents didn't implement that, I probably would have struggled more. But because I happened to be going to a boarding school um, and that had that kind of structure built in, it kind of naturally fit with my personality and, and, and my um, 
yeah, neurodivergence quite well. So were you, I'm obviously, you were homesick when you were in Germany because you were working out there, but in terms of boarding school, and I'm sort of pulling on my own experience having been to one and again, hated every minute of it, but I, I got very, very, very homesick whilst at, whilst at boarding school. Did you not get homesick at all then? You loved every minute of that. So, I mean, when I say homesick, I, obviously I love my parents. I wasn't really missing my parents that much. I never missed them at boarding school too much. Obviously, when I was like seven, being dropped off that first night, I'd be like crying in bed. But um, I got over it pretty quickly. <laughs> but I, when I was in Germany, it was much more like I didn't speak any German. I was in lockdown. I couldn't leave my apartment. I had a studio apartment. The only people I ever saw was like in the Aldi. And I couldn't speak German, so I couldn't even have a conversation with a cashier. I just missed connecting with people. And that was home and I just felt, so I was homesick for home more so than like my um, my parents in particular. So boarding school was okay for me. Also my parents moved to India. So in whilst I was at boarding school, so in some ways boarding school felt more like home and more familiar than like my parents' house in India sometimes. Wow. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Blimey, you were a proper boarder rather than just a week. You were a full-time boarder. That's quite intense. Yeah, full-time. Also, I was lucky... Um, my brother and sister were at school with me, so I kind of had a family there as well. Oh, that is nice. That is nice. And in terms, I suppose, of that support circle then, what do they do? I mean, are they people you pull on still, apart from obviously your mum and your dad, your brother and your sister? Do they get pulled on apart from just coming up with flavours? Or are they sort of, you know, just not interested anymore? Um, no, they're, they're, they're really helpful. I mean, both of them, like, if I have to do a trade show and suddenly I realise, actually, I, I need help. I need help setting up. They've come and helped me at markets. They've come and they've delivered parcels for me. They do, they don't. I don't ask it too much of them because obviously they have their own lives. They both live in London. They have their own jobs. Um, but they are really helpful and probably more helpful than I would be if the roles were reversed. They're much more selfless than I am, I think. In terms of when you move to London and that difference in your working life, because obviously you're going to have to be communicating with the manufacturers and the people that are doing the production, um, and you're going to be obviously, uh, uh, you know, in, in in town, for instance, that is going to change massively how you as an individual will get up in the morning and focus and work. Have you kind of put a plan in place to be able to get yourself to that point? Obviously, with your autism, I'm assuming there is some kind of methodology to how you're going to be making that work. Yeah. So, I mean, I am very aware that I'm going to have so much more time on my hands. I'm a member of a content creation sort of uh, community called the Dream House. I'm hoping that when I have more time, I can invest more energy creating uh, photo shoot ideas and really maximizing that membership to create reels. Maybe I'll start a podcast or start make recipe reels and videos for YouTube, including the granola to help like, yeah, be sort of grow my presence on social media. Um, I also hope to network more. I hope to focus my energy actually like I haven't reached out to a new stockist in six months and I still get a new stockist almost every two weeks so being more proactive in sales hopefully you can grow the business more as well uh, but I'm also I don't know why I do this myself I'm also training to be a PT because I quite like to have a job on the side as like a secondary income that is kind of like I really enjoy fitness but also sort of a job that uh, I can get out of my head and get a bit of a break from the business and I know that if I say oh I'll just take a few hours off to see friends or do a hobby I'll just work I know what I'm like so I have to sort of make it a job that's a hobby. <laughs> 
Wow, that is that's really interesting. The fact that you're taking on a side hustle when you've got your own business. I mean, do you think that is? I mean, obviously for you that's a great thing. But in terms of coping mechanisms, I mean, that's something I haven't heard of in terms of taking on more work to try and turn yourself off from from other areas of of, of life. In terms of the fitness side of things, how did you discover that that was the way? Uh, or that was the methodology that helped you kind of get over your ticks, for instance, because you know, that, I've never heard that before. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would work for everyone. I was very fortunate that my Tourette's syndrome was um, very physical and it definitely was exacerbated by um, anxiety. So when I went to, I was speaking to a, neuro, a neurologist and they were saying that, you know, there, there are drugs that you can take, but they're very extreme side effects. They're, technically for schizophrenics which i was like oh i don't think it's that bad that i need to do that and they would say we could botox your muscles to freeze them but then you might just start ticking somewhere else so they're like the best thing to do is try and find a way to reduce your anxiety and i really didn't want to take medication if i could help it and they said well you know exercise especially like cardio is really good for reducing anxiety because it helps your body um regulate your heart rate better it, it releases positive endorphins but also the, the, when you're feeling anxious, you get sweaty and your heart starts racing and you feel flush. And that's the same way your body reacts when you go for a run or a walk. So you'll, it kind of trick, it will tr help trick your brain not to be, not to tick as a response to those kind of physiological stresses. And so I tried that and it worked for me. So that's kind of what I've stuck with. Um, and yeah, I'm very lucky that I, running my own business allows me to kind of do my admin on a treadmill walking desk if i had to do a nine to five office job i wouldn't be able to exercise as much and i think uh, that would i'd really struggle with that wow that is that's it's an amazing kind of deduction i suppose of how to how to solve it but i suppose it makes so much sense and in terms of you strike me as an individual that isn't doing it for the for the money in any way. You don't want to grow the business and make 30, 40 million quid down the line. That isn't exciting to you. It's more the lifestyle, the control, and the, uh, the, 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 the way of being, I suppose, as to why you've started this. Do you think... Do you think you're going to always have this as a lifestyle business and grow it to a point that you're comfortable with, but never really get with, rid of it because it allows you to, to have more autonomy in your life? I think that having started my business and having this kind of control over my routine and I, I, I feel very satisfied every day. I used to feel quite unsatisfied in other jobs or other, in my studies when I felt like I was doing something that wasn't bringing out the best in me because I wasn't that interested in it or I wasn't that good at it. So I definitely like the satisfaction of never being bored, always having something to do, my sort of slightly workaholic tendencies, already enjoying that side of the business. I don't think it needs to be cheeky nibble. I haven't got bored of Cheeky Nibble yet and I really enjoy it, but I like building brands. So I don't know whether I'd have Cheeky Nibble necessarily forever, but I could see myself maybe building something else afterwards because I love the process of coming up with an idea and researching and researching to see if there's a gap in the market and then creating something that people just connect to. That's like such a joy for me. Do you think you'd dial back to what you did at university around that sort of fashion side of things and maybe look at that as a startup down the line? I don't think so. I think I was previous in the past. I was interested in fashion a bit, but mainly like cosmetics and luxury goods in the cosmetics area. I think that my lifestyle now is a bit more simple. I just like simple. Sure, like I probably would go into like the fitness space maybe because that's a huge passion. Um, or food. I love the food industry. I think the people I've met in the food industry are so kind and welcoming. 
more so than sometimes people I've met in the fashion industry. So oh, yeah. I just think it's a nice environment to be around. And it has a very broad, because of all the different cuisines and cultures, you get a really diverse mix of people as well, which I enjoy as well. Which you don't really get in Norfolk, I'll be honest. No. As I'm looking forward to being back in London. I'm looking forward to that for sure. I, I love, um, I like eating other food. And I, every time I go to London, it's like Vietnamese, Korean. I always want to try something new. Um, I'm, yeah, here there's good roasts and that's about it. This episode is sponsored by Hux Health. And Hux Health is your insurance policy. It is your booster shot, the extra hour of focus, or indeed the gift of sleep after a very long day. It is your secret weapon and it's your daily edge. And it's also a product that I use daily and I swear by it. I use the hydration tablets, the nootropic capsules and the sleep capsules. Head over to HuxHealth.com where you can get 30% off all the products by using the discount code SUCCESS when ordering because life is about your path and not the beaten path. Back to the episode. In terms of sacrifice um, you know, that you've made personally, what, what have you had to kind of say no to or sacrifice to get to, to get to this point, to get through your schooling career, to get to the next chapter in your life, for instance? Like, what have you had to physically sacrifice to get there? I think that obviously when I came back to from Germany, I could have got a job in London where all my friends were. Um, it is very lonely um, running your own business anyway. Even like founders I know who live in cities with all their friends, it's very lonely because your schedule is very different, your priorities are very different. But also physically being removed and living not only where none of my friends are, but also in a very rural village in the middle of nowhere. Um, that's a big sacrifice. I think I was naive to how lonely it would be. But that naivety got me where I was because I wouldn't have started it maybe if I'd known how, how isolating it could be. But uh, yeah, definitely I've had to sacrifice, you know, my friendships, relationships, um, not having time to see people. And if you don't invest time in friendships and things, uh, they, they they can fade away. So that's I'm looking forward to being back in London and reconnecting with some friends. So, I mean, in, t in terms of then, you say about being naive, and everybody says that going into business, naivety is sometimes quite a good thing. Do you think you'd have actually done it had you realised what you were in for? Or do you think you'd have run a mile? I don't know, because like, I think the sacrifices and the stress, I was naive to how much it, it would be. And also the kind of like, it, it is quite daunting knowing that the the future of your life and your economy and how much you could afford to live off is solely dependent on you. You haven't got like a team of people or a boss or established company that will just pay you a salary every month. And yeah, it'd be great to be promoted, but you could always look for a job elsewhere. Like I, I'm solely responsible for my own future. Uh, that's intimidating. And I was naive to that, but also I've, I, this is the first time in my life I've never been bored. And as much as the sacrifices have been hard, the thing I hate most is being bored and I've found it so exciting and so interesting and engaging that even with hindsight, I don't think I would give that up. And even if it wasn't cheeky nibble, I think I would do something else. I, I, uh, I would have to, um, I, I, I can't imagine a job that would keep me as, as sort of stimulated and engaged as my own business. 
Do, do you think that those that are, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23 years old, for instance, and going into business, and I started when I was 19, I'm now 29, you know, although I look a lot older. Um, do you think that, that sometimes people are apprehensive about that because they don't think they'll be taken seriously? Or do you actually think it's a good thing to go in young and early because you can make all these mistakes and, and actually not have to worry about them as much? I think, I mean, I think youth is always helpful in the sense that you're naive so and people are willing to help you because they don't expect you to know um which is also very useful um and i think it's less intimidating you don't necessarily have as many responsibilities you might not have children yet or you might not have um like a mortgage you know you you, you can invest your own money on yourself and um i think also there's less fear of failure because ultimately if you do fail you have time to start a new career which I think is maybe when you're older, not that if you're that should restrict you when you're older either, but there might be a little bit more of social pressures not to completely restart your life. Um, so I think that that is helpful. Um, but then obviously if you're older, you might have more experience and more capital to invest in yourself. So there's probably two sides. I would, well, having done so, I think being younger is always better, but it's less scary. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Are you scared of what's around the corner in the next couple of years as you kind of start to actually grow the business into something that's more than just yourself? Does that kind of keep you up at night with a little bit of apprehension? Yeah, it's weird. It's kind of like I'm half scared of not being successful and then also half scared of being successful. It's kind of like, I've, I think when you, when especially right now, because I do everything myself, um, the thought of being a, biz, biz, a big business seems overwhelming. But the reality is, if I ever become a big business, I will have a team of people to help me. I won't be by myself anymore. So I have to remind myself that, yeah, if you are making thousands of boxes for waitress, you will not be baking them all yourself. Like, calm down. Um, so I just need to have that sort of like slight mindset shift. And I think going to this new manufacturer will help me kind of see what it will be like to run a business from an office rather than in a bakery every day. Do you think you'd have found it a little bit easier if you had a business partner that was with you to share the journey? Or do you like the fact that it's your way or the highway at the moment? Not really. I think I I can come across quite single-minded and stubborn, but I, I love collaborating. I enjoy meeting other founders and I love bouncing ideas of people. And I think I would have really liked to have a co-founder, somebody just to be like a second opinion, a sounding board, and also another set of eyes with other qualities that I don't have um, that can help grow the business because they have, yeah, they're good at things that I'm not. Uh, it would be very difficult to have somebody as a equal now just because I've put so much of sweat equity into it. I think it'll always be quite hard to have a sort of co-founder at this stage. Um, but definitely, um, yeah, I would love to have employees that I've, I feel like oh, I can share ideas with and grow together with. Do you think you're going to, you know, or have you got a board of NEDs or, or people around you that aren't family members, that are people that you can call on? I know you mentioned about your mentor that, that that has patched you into this new facility, but in terms of other people that you can, you know, just speak to and go, look, is this right? Am I doing this correctly? You know, should I go over here or should I go over there? Do you have that, that support network? I mean, at the moment, I have a really great um, uh, support because I won this Innovate UK award, which is, includes like an hour or two of sort of sit down Zoom call mentoring every week, which I love. And my uh, supervisor is amazing. So that's honestly, the grant's obviously great, but the biggest benefit of the award, especially if you're a solo founder, um, is that mentoring access and just her help and her putting me in touch with people that could be useful and just bouncing ideas of her. Even 
this isn't an area of expertise. Just having someone to talk to who has dedicated time to be interested in your business is great. Um, but also, I've met so many other founders, all sort of young founders, some of them are female um, as well. And we just voice note each other all the time on WhatsApp. And they're like, oh, like it could be something as simple as like, have you tried this farmer's market? Is that good? Do you know this packaging supplier? Are they reliable? Oh, I, I'm struggling to find this. And we just send each other questions all the time or if one of us is creating new packaging designs or put it on the group chat. So we've kind of built our own communities, which I really value and I hope um, will I'll continue to have even if I get bigger. How do you find those kind of communities then for individuals that are wanting to to join a community or thinking about starting up? You know, where do you go to to, to find that kind of camaraderie? So, I mean, a lot I meet through um, networking events and the ones I just click with, I stay in touch with. I also have actually had a lot of young female entrepreneurs reach out to me and they're sort of pre-launched. They haven't quite mm-hmm. yet launched yet. And they've fallen in love with the brand and they've kind of asked me questions like, how did you start your business? And I've I, I see us as sort of equals because I get equally inspired by what they're about to do. Um, but they, all, I guess I have kind of been quite helpful as somebody a bit further down the road giving them advice. So that that's happened a lot, actually, like maybe four or five times young uh, female entrepreneurs who want to start their own food businesses have reached out and I've tried to be as helpful as I can. But they're also going to be super helpful back at giving feedback on things I've asked them. As a startup or SME, it can be hard to keep your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on 100% of the time. A past guest of the show and now series sponsor, Habu, offers solutions to businesses and organisations of varying sizes the ability to pick and pack your product from their D2C hubs across Europe. You can now stop asking your partner to help box up a recent order, and your living room will no longer be filled with boxes from floor to ceiling. Instead, the team at Habu will do all of this for you, and you don't need to worry about size. Habu helps start startups with orders of less than 500 parcels a week all the way through to larger organisations with more complexities. So speak to the team at hubu.com and quote success pod and see how they can help you. Back to the episode. Have you hit the wall before? Have you sort of, you know, gone for something and then just gone, I'm just not interested in doing this anymore. I can't do it. I'm going to give up. And you thought cheeky nibble might just, you know, fall by the wayside or have you been all guns blazing for the last, you know, 12, 18 months? I mean, I think I've actually been really lucky that I I, I know I, I understand the the what you mean by like I'm someone that if I don't see regular progress, I'm like, what am I doing this for? I always want to see some kind of growth. I have been really lucky that even if sales don't go up one month, I'll get a new stockist. Or even if um, yeah, I haven't had much social media right increase. I'll have an influencer reach out who wants to do a collaboration down the line. You know, I always feel like there's something in the future that I'm working towards. And that's obviously been really lucky. So I've not really had that kind of block. There's been times, especially when finding a manufacturer, where I'm like, I can't grow the business unless I find a manufacturer. Um, So I need to find one. And it was hard finding it. But once I decided that I don't want to set up up my own bakery and I'm going to have to find one, I just knuckled down and, and found it. I... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I've been lucky that there hasn't been any sort of huge roadblocks that I couldn't get around um, with just a bit of creative thinking. 
But I think it is all in the mind in that sense. I think, you know, people can come up against a wall and go, I can't find a manufacturer. This is just too difficult. I'm going to go and work in the world of, of, of recruitment, like your dad, for instance. Arguably, those that do push on are the ones that get past the first three years and eventually make their business into something more than a micro or a startup, for instance, you know. Um, and in terms um, in terms then of looking at the future and where you kind of think Cheeky Nibble will go, if you had to paint a picture for the next sort of 12, 18 months, what do you think that that, that looks like in terms of scale then? I think the next 12, 18 months, I hope to have been in Whole Foods and I also want to start creating more products and not necessarily more flavors, but I want to make like mini accessible bars or boxes and get into maybe like an airline or some hotels or cafes, just like increase my opportunities for the types of retailers I could have by creating a product that's more on the go than like a cereal box in the cupboard. And that I hope will sort of start get, building the brand awareness and building this idea of Cheeky Nibble being a sort of fun, delicious snack brand. It is a breakfast cereal as well, but that will kind of help take me to my ne- the next level of maybe yeah diversify my product portfolio because I don't like the idea. I think it's never a good idea to rely on like one product or one retailer or one stockist. You need to have like... <laughs> It's spread over in case something happens. So goal setting for you, do you do you do you write it down? Do you kind of have some kind of process where you go, right, at the age of twenty-four, I want to have done X, at the age of twenty-five, I want to have done Y? Or is it very much, you know, just going with that sort of flow and seeing where it goes? How do you metric yourself? I think my natural instinct, and this is maybe the autism, is to write very, very thorough plans. Um, but actually what's been good for me um doing cheeky nibble is that a plan becomes redundant or a business plan becomes redundant within like a month. So don't spend too much time and energy creating very specific goals because some goals might not be possible and some new opportunities might arise that you actually want to postpone a goal because you want to take this new channel that's presented itself. So I do write business plans quite often and I write ideas of what I want to do in the next few months. Like I might have a dream stockist or a dream sales growth or whatever, but yeah, I, I'm also much more receptive to change than I probably previously would have been. And that's obviously something I've had to learn to cope with as a as a founder um, and as an autistic founder. It was difficult, but I've seen the benefit of being a bit more flexible, which is very valuable for someone like me. Look, Marietta, thank you ever so much um, for coming on the show. Genuinely, I love how early stage this business. I love the the, the trajectory that you have and just how passionate you are, specifically uh, around dealing with you know mental health issues, dealing with neurodivergence. And, and, and for me, I found it very inspiring. I hope that those that are listening found it inspiring. For those that want to go and buy uh, some Cheeky Nibble, where can they go and do that? So I have um, a website, which is www w.cheekynibble.com and on there you can buy my granola there's also a map which shows where i'm stopped in the uk so there's one near you it's always i'm always happy to help you to support my local stockists because i tend to be stocked in quite like small denny's and other small businesses that um, are great as well to explore And here's a little message from our carbon offset partners, Carbon Positive. 
So, hey, Andrew, I just, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We obviously wanted to introduce you because you guys are happily uh, supporting us from a carbon positive point of view, trying to get the, the podcast carbon positive over the next 12 months. But I wanted you to tell the listeners why you chose this podcast and, you know, what's so special about carbon positive from a non-for-profit point of view? So we decided to choose Success in the Mind podcast for a couple of reasons. It's not necessarily our absolute forte because of uh, our position being a, being a not-for-profit, but uh, it definitely aligns with some of the aspects that we do uh, and that we want to support podcasts with in particular. We want to make it easy for podcasts to be able to to be able to become carbon positive and to be able to make their podcast environmentally friendly and show their listeners that they have a social conscience. We understand that it's difficult for people and it takes a lot of time sometimes and we wanted to give podcasts the tools to be able to calculate and offset their carbon footprint throughout their whole podcast, which goes from everything from production to their listeners across the world, and to be able to offset that footprint and become a carbon positive podcast. So, I mean, for us, it's it's something quite close to our heart. From a business point of view, we're very much focusing on becoming carbon neutral. Now, with regards to the podcast, you guys are kindly helping us along the way of becoming carbon positive. So, 120 uh, percent uplift on on that. Essentially, just talk to me about how you're going to make our podcast carbon positive over the next 12 months we essentially use an algorithm to calculate the carbon footprint of every podcast so with that algorithm takes into account lots of different factors basically everything from uh, listener location listener device choices global electricity consumption for example with the device choices if someone was to listen to a podcast on a mobile phone it's 600 times less energy intensive than if they were to listen to it on a laptop or computer, for example. So we'll take all of that information and we'll create a custom plan that will be specifically tailored towards successes in the mind that will help us in two ways. It will help us to make sure that we can keep really up-to-date statistics for every single podcast and it will also give us a good idea to make sure that the algorithm is calculating efficiently. You know, you're a non-for-profit business, B, um, I don't think you've necessarily worked with podcasts necessarily like ours before. So it's really exciting to be on that journey with you, helping you guys do it, but but similarly sort of seeing what you guys want from us equally. No, you are. You are um, absolutely our first major case study which is super exciting for us because it really gives us some in-depth data that we can use to help every other podcast 80 to 85 percent of the podcasts that are produced will be able to offset their carbon footprint for less than the price of a takeaway coffee every month we see podcasting as a it's quite a young industry which means that we have a unique opportunity to be able to gain there early and to support podcasts to become carbon positive and make podcasting the world's first carbon positive medium it's properly exciting to to be on that 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 journey with you and i know you guys are based out in switzerland and we're obviously based in the uk but to be able to come together remotely is is very exciting and to be able to see our podcast become carbon positive over the next 12 months for me um is just another reason reason to, to, to get involved in it. So thank you very much for asking us to get involved. In terms of people that are listening to, to this show and every other show, where can they go to A, find out more about Carbon Positive um, and B, what do they need to do to get in touch? The place to find out more would be to go to our website, www.carbonpositive.com. 
But then, as we all know, every business comes with unavoidable carbon footprint. We understand that offsetting isn't the absolute answer, but we can make the industry better, first of all, and then what is unavoidable footprint, we can try and offset. There'll be a tips and tricks page on the website, which will help to reduce, first of all. And then there's a really short little page on there that you can input two pieces of data, monthly downloads and average listening time. And then within two minutes, a podcast can become carbon positive. I think it's worth saying as well, the um, the footprint of the podcasting industry is 1.7 billion kilograms of carbon per year, just because that doesn't really mean anything to me a year ago, but now it does. It's equivalent to 2 million flights from London to New York every year, or alternatively, a flight every 15 seconds. It's a drop in the ocean as far as the world is concerned, but if we can reduce that and obviously eventually bring that down to zero, or even bring it into the positive section, which is what we're hoping to do, then we hope that that should make a difference. Wow. 15 flights a second, carbon positive. I love it. I'm glad we're involved, and thank you so much for thinking of us, Andrew. Thank you very much, Oliver, for speaking to me. 